If you have your Bible, find uh, John chapter 15. With our passage this morning, we are inching our way closer to the, the end of this, what is commonly called the upper room discourse on the final night of Jesus with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. We've been in this discourse since chapter 13 and will be in it until chapter 17 where uh, it will end with chapter 17 is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples and all who would later follow him. So today we're sort of in, in Jesus' final words to his disciples um, and, and we'll consider what he says in the latter half of chapter 15 and then in the first half of chapter 16. And if you read ahead, uh, I, I kind of put on the group me what our passage was going to be today. Or if you're just already familiar with this passage, you know that in a lot of ways it's a very sobering passage with a, a very realistic, utterly realistic um, look at the world for, uh, at, you know, Christians living in the world. Um, sort of just thinking about this this upper room discourse of all that Jesus says, beginning in chapter 13 on, in this upper room discourse, other than what he says about the fact that he's about to go to the cross, suffer and die, other than that, what he tells his disciples here about what they should expect as his followers once he is gone are, in my estimation, the most difficult words that he shares with them. And I was reading and reflecting on this passage again this week, and, I, and it made me it reminded me of what we encounter often uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we studied this past summer. Uh, you know, you might remember during the, the lockdown and the long COVID summer, uh, if you were watching on those videos, we studied through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, there's hardly an encouraging word there. I mean, it is a brutally realistic um, view of the world. Some, wrongly, I think, call it pessimistic. And much of what Jesus says here is sort of like what we see in Ecclesiastes. And just reminding you, here's, here's something that J.I. Packer said about Ecclesiastes. He says, what the preacher wants to show is that the real basis of wisdom is a frank acknowledgement that this world's course is enigmatic, that much of what happens is quite inexplicable to us, and that most occurrences under the sun bear no outward sign of a rational, moral God ordering them at all. And he goes on to say, the God who rules the world hides himself. Rarely does the world, does this world look as if a beneficent providence were running it. Rarely does it appear that there is a rational power behind it all. Often what is worthless survives while what is valuable perishes. Be realistic, says the preacher. Face the facts. See life as it is. You will, not, you will have no true wisdom until you do. Jesus, in the passage that we're about to read, especially in the latter part of chapter 15, uh, in different terms than that, sort of tells his disciples and us much the same thing. I mean, in fewer words, actually, about, about, about the world they're about to enter after he's gone. But, he, but we're going to go into chapter 16. So in, in, uh, Jesus is going to go beyond what Ecclesiastes often gives us. Uh, he adds to this sobering assessment of the world a good deal of reason for hope and for, uh, for confidence. So that said, let's read what Jesus tells us here. Again, we're going to start in chapter 15 at verse 18. 
and read through the first half of chapter 16, stopping at verse 15. So beginning in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of, of sin, but, they, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask humbly this morning uh, that you would give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see here. And don't just give us eyes to see it, we ask. Give us minds to understand it clearly and hearts to embrace and love, care about, see as important the truth that Jesus conveys to us here. Would you, would you please um, give us wills to obey what you call us to obey? Give us ears to hear. Please give me the, the help that I need to teach. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so maybe you could see what I was talking about earlier. The first half of our passage that I just read is fairly sobering. I mean, frankly, he says, the world is going to hate you. <laughs> and, that's, and he says it as plainly as that. Uh, so expect it. And at one point, he even gives them an example of the, the kind of hatred that he's, that he's talking about. They're going to kick you out of synagogues. They may even kill you. But the second half of the passage mainly in chapter 16, gives us a good dose of hope uh, and reason for courage and perseverance. Not, not just in, the, in, in that he tells them ahead of time to, to expect it, uh, and hence even just that is equipping them, as we'll see, to face it, but also especially in what he says about the Holy Spirit and, and, and specifically referring to the Holy Spirit as the helper, right? So uh, if you're taking notes, here's how I want us to consider what John says here as we think about what Jesus says about the hatred of the world I want us to think first about the cause of the hatred the cause of the hatred Um, mainly in the last half of chapter 15 verses 18 to 25 the cause of the hatred Jesus doesn't say everything that the New Testament broadly will say on this issue but he sure gets to the root of it for sure the cause of the hatred and then secondly we'll consider very briefly the consequence of the hatred Uh, In the first half of chapter 16, uh, really, this is going to focus on one verse, what he says in verse 2, the the consequence of the hatred uh, found in in chapter 16, verse 2. And then finally, the courage for the hatred in the first half of chapter 16, verse 1, and then verses 3 through 15. So having said that, let's dive into it and think first about the cause of the hatred that Jesus is talking about. We've already mentioned how Jesus opens the passage in verse 18, essentially laying out the truth that it's still hard for many believers, most believers maybe, um, to come to terms with or even believe will certainly be the case, namely that the world will hate you as a Christian. I mean, it's a hard truth. And somebody might say, somebody might look at, at, at John 15, 18 and might say, well, it says if, right? If the world hates you. So he's not necessarily saying that the world will hate you. He's saying if at some point it happens to you. It just might. Somebody might be tempted by that to believe that they could be a faithful Christian. According to what Jesus says and the New Testament says, they could be a faithful Christian and not experience this reaction from the world. But honestly, that isn't what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he's saying. Not only does he later talk explicitly in greater firmness and certainty, like verse 21, but all these things they will do to you. They will do these things to you. Or earlier in in verse 20, even though it has an if, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Well, did they persecute Jesus? In fact, they did. Hence, they will persecute you. So not only does Jesus speak in more definite terms in other verses in this passage, but also as we think about the flow of thought that he gives here about why the hatred and opposition will come from the world for the Christian, it doesn't leave any room for a believer to be a faithful, committed, 
follower of Jesus Christ and expect positive reviews and reaction from the world. Now, I'll say this, that a Christian can certainly bring uh, on himself more hostility and, and more uh, opposition than he might otherwise have uh, just, just by being obnoxious and abrasive right, about, about bearing witness. There is a way to be faithful and at the same time be winsome and humble. And in many cases, in many cases, a, a humble and a winsome Christian can, can uh, bear witness and be received and be heard by, by the world more favorably, even if disagreed with, more favorably, um, and with more welcome than he might otherwise have if he's just coming pers- purposefully combative uh, or, or um, looking for a confrontation, looking for an argument. That being the case, still, according to what Jesus says here, there is no amount of winsomeness, there is no amount of humility that will make the message of the Christian faith palatable to the world. Now, we need to know what John means by world here. He says, if the world hates you, because he uses that term a lot in a lot of different ways, John does. Um, A.W. Pink identified seven different ways that John uses the term world. I think it might have been B.B. Warfield who distinguished 16 different ways. I don't know if there's that many, but uh, it is true that sometimes he uses the word world simply to mean the earth. I mean, he says in chapter, he starts chapter 13 by saying, if you remember that, now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. That's just the earth itself. Sometimes he uses the term world to mean all people without exception, all of humanity. Sometimes he means all kinds of people without distinction. Sometimes he means the world system, at, that is, governments and institutions and laws and the influence of Satan in the world. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Sometimes he means the whole world of believers. Sometimes he means the whole world of humanity minus the believers. And I think uh, that's what he's referring to here. How do we know that? the whole world minus believers. If the world hates you, that's talking, the world is all of humanity minus believers. How do we know that's what he's talking about? Well, intuition alone kind of tells you that that's what he's referring to based on what he's saying. But I think there's another clue down in verse 25. If you're looking at verse 25, we're at the tail end of, of all that Jesus says in this part of the passage. At the tail end of that, He says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me. They hated me without a cause. And he's quoting, he's quoting an Old Testament passage here. What's he quoting? He's actually quoting uh, two different places. The same sentence, the same phrase is found in both Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. Both of those, I don't want to belabor this point, but it's, it's an important point. It's an, whenever you find an Old Testament quotation, it's very much on purpose, and so you ought to investigate it. 
Psalm 35, Psalm 69, both are Psalms of David, where David, if you read both of them side by side, they're very similar. In both cases, David is, is sort of presented as the innocent and righteous sufferer before God, and he's crying out to God for rescue, for deliverance, and crying out to God for punishment of the wicked, punishment of those who are pursuing him, punishment of those who are, who are out to get him, and for also for protection of the righteous in the land, protection for those who have hoped in God, or even as in, 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 in Psalm 35, those who have hoped in my righteousness, David says. For one thing, Jesus is quoting those psalms to say something about himself that he is the fulfillment of David's role there. He's the fulfillment. He is, he, Jesus is the innocent and righteous sufferer. He, and, and in about a chapter, chapter 17, he will be the one praying for all those who have hoped in his righteousness. But in both of those Psalms, Psalm 35, Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 69, the wicked are described as those who hated me without a cause. Those who hated me without a cause and otherwise as those who contend with me, those who fight against me. In the first instance, it was King David's enemies, but he was a type of the coming Christ. And so in a typological sense, Jesus is quoting these psalms as also describing his enemies and therefore the enemies of his followers. Namely, those who hate him and them without a cause. Those who contend with him and them. Those who fight with him and them. So this is the world that John is talking about here. All in the world who have a disposition against Christ and against Christians. Who bristle at the message of the gospel and at the wisdom of Scripture. So Jesus opens this section preparing his disciples for the reaction they should expect from most unbelievers that they will encounter after he is gone. And this, is, this certainly came true for his disciples. I mean, almost immediately. Think of the amazing times uh, of favor even just in a few days or weeks following what he says here. It was just a few weeks later that you come to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and it's a tremendous day of favor. Peter stands up, and he preaches, and the Spirit falls, and 3,000, 3,000 repent and believe. And we rightly focus on and give glory to God for those 3,000 who were saved. What a huge number that is. I mean, if you make any concerted effort to routinely share the gospel here. You don't, you don't, it's, it's rare to see that kind of fruit, right? But Peter and John would even tell you in Acts chapter 2 that even though there were 3,000 who came to faith that day, there were thousands more who hated them and oppressed them, not least the Sanhedrin who had strings to pull and could ruin their lives. The same with the Apostle Paul. For every city that was turned upside down in good ways for their preaching, it, he was in those same cities, ridiculed and beaten and mobbed and left for dead. What, what is the cause of it? 
Jesus gave no indication that it would get better over time. No, if it was to be true for his disciples, it should be our expectation as well. But why? What is the cause of this hatred of the world? According to the end of verse 18 in chapter 15, he expects that if they hated him, they will hate those who love him and follow him. And he gives this reason in verse 19. If you were of the world, note that phrase, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the reason. What is the reason? Because Christ chose us as his own, and we were born again by his Spirit. That's what he means by of the world, or not of the world. It means whose are you? Whose nature do you have? And Jesus is saying that the world will hate us because Jesus has chosen us to be his people, and in the later words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.5, he has made us alive together with Christ. Or in the later words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But for that to be the reason that believers should expect contention from the world, it seems like another question has to be answered first. Um, Jesus assumes something in, 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 um, in that answer. Because otherwise, his choosing of us to be his own and our being born again by his Spirit would not necessarily bring upon us the ire of the world unless something else further were true. The further question is, how will the world know? How will the world know that he chose us and that we have been born again? Because otherwise, those two realities, his choosing of us, and our being born again by a spirit. Otherwise, those are two realities strictly between us and God. Right? But Jesus assumes it won't be. And that's why. Don't forget the context of what he's saying here. He just spent the whole first half of chapter 15 talking about what? Fruit. Fruit. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When Jesus says the world will hate you because I, I chose you and you are now of my spirit rather than of the world, he knows and he rightly assumes that for those for whom that is true, it will be obvious to the world around them. Because a person for whom that is true is not left unchanged. He literally said back in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And what does that fruit look like? What are we gradually in sanctification changed into? If we're not left unchanged, what are we changed into gradually over time? Into Christ-likeness. Into Christ-likeness. Verse 20, if you're looking at verse 20, 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. How can he be so sure? Why does Jesus expect that whatever happened to him will happen to them? Because, as his, because his people will look like him. They will look like him. Do what he did, say what he said. Therefore, it's not a leap to say, if, if this happened to me, it will happen to you. Which is why we should not expect it to go well for Christians in the world. I mean, generally speaking, sure, varying levels of freedom in different places in the world. There are varying different levels of, of freedoms. But even in the freest of all places in the world, human hearts are still the same. And, and, and will push back, not just on the message of Christ, but on the messengers. We see it all around us. Cancel culture is a real thing. And people's livelihoods are taken away. People's livelihoods are taken away because a Christian business owner feels compelled to act humbly according to her convictions, to refrain from engaging in an activity with her business that might bring reproach on Christ or compromise her Christian convictions. Lawsuit brought livelihood taken away. And there never has been a society or an era on earth in which that wasn't true. Somebody might think that 50, 60, or 70 years ago in the Bible Belt, in the South, right, the Bible Belt, that that, that might have been, it might have been an easier time to be a Christian because so much of the broader culture around you in this Bible Belt had a Christian veneer on it. More people claimed to be Christians. More people went to church. The church was the center of community functions. It was no problem for a man or woman to say, I'm a Christian. In fact, it might get you on the board of directors somewhere. But if that Christian in those days, in the, in the, in the, in the Bible Belt, uh, was so bold in many places to speak up for and to speak out for a, a, a biblical view of human beings being made in the image of God, both black and white, he most surely would have a problem on his hands. You can be a Christian just as long as you believe what we say and believe what we agree with. There is no golden age is what I'm trying to say. There is no golden age. Nostalgia is a liar, right? There's no golden age. We remember what we want to remember, the way we want to remember it. And to the degree that we face no conflict at all, ever, no rejection, no disagreement, no rub of any kind from the world, to that degree we bear little resemblance to Christ. It is unavoidable to the degree we consciously walk in obedience and bear witness to Christ. Therein lies the cause of the hatred. It's an evergreen reality until Christ comes again. But quickly, what kind of consequences might Christians face? How does this hatred 
play out in real life. Let's quickly think about that, the consequences of the hatred. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's a, that's a sobering verse. To be put out of the synagogue at that time would, would, be, would not simply be excommunicated from worship, the worship of God as they understood it, which that is true. But in many places, it was being put out of society. It, wa- it was losing your whole community. And right down to this day, and there are, pe- there are plenty of people in the world to this day who would discriminate against Christians and think they are doing service to God as they understand Him. That's still true to this day. But what about even in places where there is no overt belief in God? Is, is that still true here? Yeah. They, this is still true. that The world around us may not officially believe in God at all, but in many places, our culture being one of them, they do believe there is a, a right and a wrong side of history and a, and a, and a boundary of their own choosing of what that is, right? It's a God of their own making. And faithful Christians will bear the brunt of, of discrimination and worse for that reason. Regardless of belief in God or not, opposition to Christ or Christians um, never seems to be mild or benign. Um, it always the opposition to Christians always seems to be carried out with, a, with, a, with the conviction of a holy cause. Whatever cause is holy to them. It's a sobering world for sure, but Jesus in no way leaves his final message to them there. He spends the last half of the passage reminding them how and why they should have courage for this hatred. And as I consider all that Jesus says here, courage for the hatred. Um, And there is no question that he says more in the first half of chapter 16 than we're going to have time to consider closely. I think he leaves us um, with comfort and courage in three ways in what he says here. I want to see those quickly before we come to a close. For one thing, Jesus gives us something we can look back on. He says in in verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And he says in verse 4, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, what is their hour? What their mean the persecution and the hardship. When that, when that hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I told them to you. That's Jesus is there demonstrating the same divine omniscience that he had already put on display back in chapter 13 verse 19. I am telling you this now, he said there. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that I am. How does that help? Well, just put yourself in the, in the, in the situation. How, how disillusioning might it have been how disillusioning might have been to them and to us to enter into the world as ambassadors of the risen Christ. He is risen from the dead. Everything feels triumphant. He 
You now enter the world as, as ambassadors of the risen Christ, expectant of a welcome. I mean, he rose from the dead for crying out loud. Expectant of a welcome, and you receive only hatred. How disillusioning would that have been? It is a comfort to us and should give us courage that Jesus told us what to expect ahead of time. And that we will endure no more from the world than he already received. Jesus at several points in this passage, also from another perspective, a second way that he gives us courage here, he gives us something not just to look back on, but also something to look forward to. At several points in this passage, uh, he hints at judgment that is coming to this world of all who remain unrepentant and unbelieving. Most clearly back in chapter 15, verse 25 again, where he quoted those two psalms. Recall that in them, David is crying out to God for, um, for one thing, for God to bring judgment on the wicked, on those who persecute him and persecute those who love him. The, the tone of those psalms is that judgment is coming. And then later in chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus talks about the world and the ruler of this world being judged. So believers can now endure whatever hardships that comes and endure it from a place of victory, knowing that vindication is coming for them in the end. So it gives us something to look back on. He gives us something to look forward to. But the third word of courage that Jesus gives us in this passage is not something we look back on or forward to, but the fact that even though he is gone, he hasn't left us in the meantime. We have the emboldening and empowering of the Holy Spirit with us and in us now. Jesus reminds them again in chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Why? And you also will bear witness, verse 27. Well, why will we also bear witness? Because the Spirit is bearing witness. The Spirit is bearing witness in us, through us, and hence we bear witness. He's already talked about that in chapter 14 and don't again don't let it be lost on you that Jesus doesn't just say the Holy Spirit's coming he says the helper is coming the helper is coming he is he is such a helper to us that actually in verse 7 of chapter 16 Jesus says that it is to our advantage that Jesus goes away it is to our advantage that Jesus has gone and the Holy Spirit is here we have it better than his disciples had it when Jesus was physically here. In the sense that the Holy, how is it better that the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus physically being at my side? Because the Holy Spirit is, is a more constant presence in my heart and in my mind than Jesus ever was by my side. And in verses 8 through 11, of chapter 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do his work through us, even among unbelievers, as we bear witness to him. He will do his work of convicting the world of their sin and of their right and, of, and convicting them of the righteousness of God and of their false judgments of things. 
And in verses 12 through 15, there is the assurance that he will bear witness to Christ through us. When it is difficult to speak, when we are fearful to speak, the Holy Spirit is there to give us the courage and the words. It's like Jesus told his disciples. It's almost identical to what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12. When Jesus said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's verses 11 and 12 of Luke 12. So we have no reason to fear or be anxious. We do need to be realistic. But we have every reason to, to be faithful and to gladly persevere. We will find our, our, our greatest joy and satisfaction to the extent that we are faithfully obedient to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to I spend just a few minutes as we come to a close uh, praying with each other. And as I thought about this passage and how we might pray, my mind was drawn to Acts chapter 4 just a few weeks or months after what Jesus said here and in Acts chapter 4 um, Peter and John had just been arrested and threatened later they would be beaten Peter and John facing exactly what Jesus would say here. And when Peter and John were let go, they came back to their friends in Acts chapter 4. And it says, beginning in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So they prayed in that moment. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, that's us, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So maybe just for a few minutes as we pray together in groups of two or three, that's Maybe how you pray. Just pray that uh, maybe you confess to the Lord your timidity if you've been timid. And you pray and you ask the Lord for courage and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that after, when you leave this place, you might walk in the bold witness for Christ that these early Christians did. They're no different than you, and God is the same. Let's pray for just a few minutes, and I'll close this out.